tweets, Israel and Iran, why the Senate Armed Services Committee is split down the middle over a top Pentagon nomination. Israel goes to elections. Is it deja vu all over again? That and our featured guest this week, the former majority leader of the U.S. House of Representatives, Eric Cantor. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Episode 9, Season 2 Premiere of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. And I love that we get to call it Season 2 whenever we decide it's Season 2. I was inundated over the last two weeks. Where is the podcast? What happened to you guys? Did you get canceled? What is going on? Said, no, no, no. No, no, no. We're doing seasons now. You just don't know it yet. But you'll learn. You'll learn and you'll love it. You'll love it. Yeah. And we're back and and better than ever. We are. We're back. We're better than ever. We've got a great guest today. We've got a couple things to talk about first, Jared. This week, the Senate Armed Services Committee met to vote on the nomination of Colin Kyle to be the number three official at the Department of Defense. Uh, Dr. Kyle up for the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy position. That's the number three role there in the Pentagon. This had been a brutal nomination fight so far. Not over yet, obviously. Still needs to go to the floor of the Senate. Uh, to try to be as fair as possible on the setup. Uh, obviously, Jerry will disagree, I'm sure, with my fairness on it. But uh, there was deep controversy over remarks and statements and positions he has taken in the past regarding Jerusalem, regarding Hamas, regarding Iran, uh, most particularly. Also, a lot about his temperament, a lot of tweets uh, that he had sent out attacking Republicans in general, specific senators, uh, a lot of sort of, uh, if anybody had followed, Neera Tandon, who had been nominated for the Office of Management and Budget Directorship, who, who lost her nomination over her uh, partisan tweets as well. Similar criticism. However, the key swing vote on the committee, uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who had opposed uh, Neera Tandon for OMB, uh, this week supported uh, Kyle's nomination in committee, and so it was deadlocked, 50-50 split, party line vote on the nomination. What happens now is obviously the majority leader, Chuck Schumer, has to use a procedural uh, motion uh, to move uh, this nomination to the floor under the Senate rules, and then we will expect uh, probably a party line vote. Uh, we'll see what happens from there, but Jared... Is there a double standard here between what happened to Colin Call and Neera Tandon? Do, do you, just as a Democrat, think this was all an invention by Republicans? You know, what's what's your take on this? Listen, if having tweets that are partisan in nature uh, makes one unqualified to hold elected or appointed office, uh, we may want to sort of rewind the last four years of American political history and take a look at it because we had a president who really, uh, he used the medium in such a way with, with such a disregard for the truth and for normal decorum that he got himself banned from Twitter. Um, this is the guy who's the standard bearer for, for his party still. Um, Knowing both Colin, Dr. Call and Neera Tandon personally, having worked with both of them over the years, Neera got a raw deal. Um, she was an advocate and an activist, but also a policy wonk. Uh, she deserved to be OMB director. She would have been phenomenal at the job. Um, Senate politics are what they are. Uh, Senator Manchin decided that was the moment that he was going to exert his uh, 
his leadership and make sure uh, the rest of the world, the rest of Democrats and the Biden administration knew that he was not one to be taken lightly. Um, it seems like uh, with Dr. Call, he's he's gotten back on uh, on the team. Uh, but I think for sure it's a double standard. I think they both deserve to, to do the job. And incidentally, you know, there are multiple high ranking former IDF officials who have been on the record talking about the key roles that, that Dr. Call played in, in securing the Iron Dome system, uh, particularly in the Obama presidency and really being a stalwart friend of Israel, even if on particular issues there was disagreement. I have to say, I've heard this Iron Dome uh, common thread, you know, from Democrats. It, by the way, this predates Colin Kyle. This was, you know, supposedly why you should trust Barack Obama about Israel because he because he supported Iron Dome funding. I was a staffer in the Congress for a member who supported missile defense for Israel. We, we were one of the key members. And I'm just telling you that this issue was a fait accompli. Colin Kyle is no responsibility for the fact that Iron Dome was funded. Congress was already moving forward. Senator Dan Inouye from Hawaii, God rest his soul, a Democrat from Hawaii, uh, who was a key leader in the Senate Appropriations Committee, was already going to move to fund that program. I think the Obama administration saw an opportunity to take a win. Uh, so I, I don't credit that. I, I look at his statements. I look at his writings on Iran. They're very dangerous, in my opinion, from a foreign policy perspective. He has opposed uh, Israel's attack on the Iraq reactor back in the 80s, saying it was the wrong move, that he would oppose any military strike on Iran's nuclear program if it was necessary again. Uh, I think you put somebody like that, who also has troubling records on Jerusalem, Hamas, in a position of influence to make recommendations about key military decisions, given the closeness of our relationship with Israel. I, I worry about that, but... But, you know, senators are going to vote their prerogative and, and, and do what and, and he may very well become the number three. And I I hope that we have a good relationship if, 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 if that's the case. And we'd welcome him on the podcast. Do you think that that Neera Tandon got a raw deal? Do you think there was anything functionally different about the two leaving leaving the policy sort of differences aside, which clearly you and Dr. Call have have some serious and significant uh, differences? And we will try and get them on the podcast. But in terms of the the politics of it, do you think that uh, there was any difference here or, you know, was it something else? I personally think there are a lot of similarities. Now, maybe somebody would argue that uh, near a tangent went further to say, let's fundraise against a, a sitting member, you know, what, what sort of departed from policy attacks, which I think, you know, is generally uh, where uh, most of the tweets from Colin Kyle were. There are some that were ad hominem attacks on Republicans generally, calling them morally bankrupt. Attacks on Lindsey Graham for, for supporting President Trump uh, were pretty divisive. Um, listen, I, I would take a hold on. Oh, a hold, wait, wait, yeah, wait, yeah, yeah. hold on. Yeah. Oh, Nobody gets to say that criticizing somebody who supported Donald Trump is divisive, right? Like Donald Trump made that made that uh, totally off the table with the way he carried himself throughout the entire campaign, the language he used about women, the language he used about what he could get away with as a man. Nobody gets to say that if you support that guy, you're being divisive. Now, you could say you don't agree with how she is uh, characterizing the entire Republican Party, because I, like you, believe that there are good and honorable people who believe different things than me on policies. But saying that criticizing somebody for their cult like uh, allegiance to Donald Trump 
for everything when he used to be an independent voice in the Senate, that's not a disqualifying condition. Come on, Rich. I, I think when you start attacking U.S. senators of selling their souls and being morally bankrupt, uh, you have left the realm of legitimate political discourse for your disagreements with the president of the United States. Uh, and you're now really engaging in a hominid attacks. Listen, this has played out. There are a lot of tweets like that. There are other tweets targeting other members as well. I don't have to rehash it. It was, re, you know, if anybody can go online to the Armed Services Senate Committee hearing uh, during the nomination, I think there were billboards uh, held up of some of those tweets. What I would say is, is that it is not a great thing for the Pentagon to have an undersecretary of defense for policy who squeaks by on a party line vote. That is not inspiring confidence for the Pentagon or for the troops. And I think it was probably a mistake to move forward with the nomination, given the level of divisiveness here. Again, they're moving forward. He may well squeak by on a, on a vice president casting the final vote. Uh, we'll see. Um, I, I hope he does well. I hope he succeeds. I hope he defies all of my expectations based on his past record. Um, I can't really tell what he's saying or thinking right now. He blocked me on Twitter a couple of years ago. Uh, so, you know, look forward to being able to have a dialogue and communication. And again, would welcome him on the podcast. Fair enough. Shifting gears a little bit here. Uh, we're all waiting for the final votes to be tallied out of Israel. Uh, the, the seat predictions on who has what keep moving really by the hour. But the bottom line looks like more of the same in Israel. So who's up and who's down? And should we get Barack Ravid on the phone to, to talk to us? Because he looks like he's some kind of an oracle now with the way he called it about, you know, uh, what was it, like a month ago when we had him on? I'll check out season one uh, for all new listeners here during season two and look for the Barack Ravid episode. Uh, he predicted the outcome of the election would be another election. Let's wait. You know, Israeli politics is not exactly like American politics. Give it a day and you'll have a new projection and, and a new understanding of coalition politics. What we know so far uh, is that Netanyahu is far and away the big winner from a single party leader perspective. Clearly, it appears, I think, the Likud getting somewhere around 30 votes at this point. Obviously, that could change. Uh, his main challenger on the right, who had broken away from Likud, Gideon Saar, the biggest loser of this election, not coming up big at all. A very big disappointment. Uh, I guess uh, I guess the uh, Lincoln Project did not come through after all uh, for Gideon Saar. Uh, who knew? Uh, but, you know, it gets complicated, right? It's As we heard uh, during that episode, this is not a, a you know Democrat Republican who's going to win. This is a multi-party coalition parliamentary system. All the little seats add up into the potential for a sixty-one majority in this in the Knesset if you can get there. Benny Gantz had a better than expected showing with blue and white uh, after his party had fallen apart. Uh, Yesha Tid, uh, chaired by Yair Lapid, certainly. The big winner from the left side of the coalition, uh, second uh, to Netanyahu. Then there's this whole other equation going on. The the traditional Arab-Israeli party, uh, the joint list, broke apart into two parties. And there's one called Ra'am with a leader named Mansour Abbas, who's sort of the moderate Arab-Israeli who says, you know, why are we always sitting out these coalitions? We should be trying to get into coalitions with the Israeli majority parties. We are Israelis. Uh, we have serious problems like crime and poverty, and we need them addressed. And if we're not in coalitions, we can't address them. Uh, so there's some reports that maybe even Bibi Netanyahu, who in the past has been accused of of you know using some some pretty heated rhetoric targeting Arab Israelis and Arabs in general to win elections, 
might try to woo Mansour Abbas into a coalition. That you know, but this is Israel. It gets crazier. There's a party called Yamina, chaired by Naftali Bennett, who says, "Hey, I, I won't sit in that coalition with Arab-Israeli parties, or will he?" So I, I don't know what the answer is right now. Are we going to another election? Is Bibi Netanyahu prime minister f- for life? The the de- Democrat dictator. Um, you know, it, it's an amazing thing, but I don't know. Is Barack Ravid going to be right? You, I guess we'll wait another day. Well, you know, there was we did have the red mirage in this country uh, in in the last election, but certainly this is going to be interesting for some time to come. So with that, I think it's time to move into our guest. Uh, we're really fortunate this week to have Eric Cantor. And Rich, why don't you go ahead and do the introduction? Ain't a political man. Yeah. Ain't no political stance. Yeah. But when the beat not got jam. Yeah. And I got the hobbit in hand. Eric Canner is the vice chairman and a managing director at Molas and Company. He advises clients on issues spanning the intersection of public policy and industry. But more relevant, and probably for most of our listeners, you'll remember Mr. Canner, who represented Virginia's 7th Congressional District from 2001 to 2014, and he served as House Majority Leader from 2010 to 2014. Eric, thank you so much for joining Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Uh, pleasure to be here. It's been, I think, what, six years now since you left the House. Uh, at the time, the political pendulum was swinging toward Republican control of all institutions of government. Today, we see the pendulum has swung all the way back. In your view, sort of what's the state of the Republican Party today from, from your perspective? Well, when I, I look back um, uh, on my unscheduled departure uh, from Capitol Hill, um, I, you know, I, what I do remember is um, a an increasing sense of populism uh, and outrage uh, targeted towards those of us who uh, were in leadership positions, were in incumbent positions, uh, and anything that was going wrong was blamed and put at our feet. And uh, I, I do think since 2014 through today, we've experienced, obviously, the Trump phenomenon. Uh, and uh, I think that it wasn't just the Republican side, but you see it on the Democratic side as well, uh, with a real populism uh, that's out there now that has come to really dominate uh, the political discourse in this country. Eric, that's a perfect segue into the question I was going to ask, which was, you know, where does the Republican Party go from here with Donald Trump still the head of the party and still making people trek to Mar-a-Lago and and get his blessing uh, if they want a future in Republican politics? Well, I I think, you know, it's it's a great question question, Jared. And and, uh, clearly, Donald Trump has demonstrated that he'll do what's good for him. No question about it. And so it'll be an interesting uh, primary season for the midterm elections in 2022 to begin to understand what Donald Trump will do. Uh, If he wants to maintain his importance, obviously, he'll need to play ball with the party, if you will. Uh, If he wants to do what's good for him and believes he can be of outsized import on his own, that's a different story. Uh, And in the meantime, clearly, the other leaders in the party nationally, uh, Mitch McConnell has um, stated very definitively that it is his job to go in and make sure that Republicans regain the majority in the Senate. Uh, my former colleague and, and uh, 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 
uh, successor, uh, Kevin McCarthy, has has said uh, without qualms that his job is to make sure that Republicans uh, uh, regain the majority in the House. So at that point, I don't think you have a national voice speaking for the Republican Party. And naturally, that will come as we then pass the midterms and begin the primary season for the presidential race, which will occur in 24. So to looking ahead to 2022, great segue. And you you mentioned sort of the the mission ahead declared from both Leader McCarthy, Leader McConnell, what they need to do. If if you were leader right now, if you were chairman of the NRCC in the House, you know, what is it that Republicans need to do? What are the key steps to take back the House, take back the Senate in your view? So, Richard, you know, it's it's going to ring true to your ears because it really goes back to sort of the days in which I first uh, went to Washington and I was in Mark Kirk's class. And Mark right. was um, famous for the suburban agenda. I and remember I it say, well. Yeah. Right. And I will say today uh, that that's what my party needs uh, to regain its footing uh, um, within the electorate that it seems to have lost. Uh, during the last you know, four, six, eight years. Uh, and uh, it, it is about speaking to the suburban professional voter, uh, because I worry that without those voters, states like mine in, in Virginia and others um, throughout the country, uh, it's just becoming increasingly difficult for my party to be uh, electorally competitive. And I guess that that sort of segues into this issue that I love to give Rich the business about um, uh, is, you know, you have a party where the majority of those polled don't necessarily agree that Joe Biden was is the legitimate president of the United States. And certainly you have a majority of Republican House members even who, who hold that view. I grew up in a, a suburban Republican district on Long Island, Pete King's district. Uh, and it's becoming, you know, more and more polarized out there. And the Republican Party is doesn't seem like it's set up to win back suburbanites. Well, look, uh, Jared, you know, some will say that we have experienced a political realignment in this country, and it may go all the way back to uh, Bill Clinton days, uh, in which you began to see uh, the professional class, if you will, the more educated, affluent uh, professional population begin to pull away from uh, my party, uh, and, and increasingly, cycle after cycle, began to vote more Democratic. I do think that that has certainly been demonstrated in a state like mine in Virginia. You've seen it take place in a state like Colorado. Obviously, you're seeing it increasingly take place in Sunbelt states like Arizona and Georgia. So um, there is a real question. I, I will tell you that the congressional seat that I used to represent was the most Republican uh, in Virginia when I was there, and it wasn't just six years ago. And, and now it's, it's held by a Democrat. And she won just barely. Uh, this is Abigail Spanberger. But uh, it goes to show you that there is something that my party is not doing to connect with those voters that we better begin to figure out. And that's why I go back to Rich and say we need to really pull that suburban agenda back out and really read it and heed it. I have I have the powerpoints. Uh, if if I don't have the right copies, Lisa will hit you somewhere in Washington right now. We'll we'll, we'll get it. I I, I I remember it well. Um, uh, you know, I will say one thing though. I know Jared's going to obviously focus on what the Republican Party is doing wrong. I guess my question is obviously, 
we're not in power at the moment, right? So there is a party that has the White House that is governing, that has the majority. And no matter what goes on sort of with the minority party, there is sort of this onus on the majority party. And we're seeing right now massive spending, $2 trillion, another couple trillion dollars being planned ahead of that. Uh, you know, y- you were a leader on tax budget issues when you were in the House, well-known even before you were majority leader. First of all, take a step back. What do you make of all the spending right now? Are you concerned about it? Are you concerned about the way it's going on a party line vote? And then I kind of want to talk about the political implications potentially for the Democrats. Well, for, first of all, I mean, on the, the stimulus bill or the Relief Act that was just passed, I mean, that's dropping checks out of helicopters. I mean, that's that's certainly initially going to be a popular bill. And it's borne out in the polls that even Republicans, I think the last poll I saw, Republicans were maybe um, just negative 4%. You know, it was almost 50-50 Republicans thought this thing was a good a good bill. Again, if you're going to get a check, I mean, think about it. This bill allowed for families that made up to $160,000 a year to get a check. That's where the cutoff was, 160000 for a married couple. So, I mean, that that and that's for people who didn't even lose their job. So clearly there is um, a rush on spending. Um, clearly there is this sentiment that um, the federal government can really have no limits on its borrowing and spending power. And I do think the Democrats, along with Joe Biden, are putting that to the test, especially, as you say, Rich, the, uh, the next round they're talking about is an additional $3 trillion. But I do think the, this next round that they're talking about is going to be a lot more difficult. Uh, because there has been a lot of sentiment on the Democrat side that they need to pay for some of that, which means taxes. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, given the fact that no Republican is going to vote for a tax increase. Uh, and if the Democrats and Joe Biden are going to have to rely solely on the uh, on the majorities uh, in the House and Senate to get it done, that means unanimity in the Senate. Uh, and it means almost that in the House with give give or take three or four votes that Nancy Pelosi's got, depending on these vacancies. But that's a tall order when you're talking about raising taxes, you're talking about putting in some of the more extreme elements um, of the progressive agenda. Uh, it's um, you, You're right. I, I do think that you may hear echoes of 2010 again with um, a suburban electorate, the one we just spoke about, getting spooked that some of these policies that they're threatening to undertake, they're actually doing it. That makes sense. I would just throw down one marker that I always love to hear Rich and other Republicans talk about the, the deficit, except when we're cutting taxes. <laughs> uh, but but for, you know, we, we move on. Eric, one of the things we learned about you when we were researching for our show tonight is that you are in a rare bipartisan marriage. Um, and I, I, I wondered if you could kind of tell us a little bit about how that works and how you manage to, uh, to continue to talk to each other in the face of some of the most polarizing times. Probably, you know, I feel like everybody always says in, in Washington, this is the most polarized it's ever been. But I really feel like this is the most polarized it's ever been. 
I, I agree with you, Jared. I think it's not only, uh, you know, it's it, it's just in a different level at this point. People are even self-selecting where they live at this point. I mean, it's it really is a, a divided world and a divided country we live in. Um, you know, it's funny, I, I, as you know, and as we all are, and as this podcast uh, reflects, we're all Jewish. And let's, let's not... Um, uh, uh, you know, fool anybody, the overwhelming majority of American Jews are Democrats. So I grew up in the organized Jewish community in Richmond, Virginia, and I can assure you I'm used to being in the minority, used to getting along with others in the organized community where there weren't many of my type. So, um, and then having served in the state legislature, um, knowing full well you better work hard to find where you agree not to dwell on places where you disagree. And so when I was lucky enough to meet my wife and we got married, we, we met on a blind date in New York City. She is native, born and raised in Miami Beach, Florida, which some would say is a suburb or used to be of New York City. Um, and uh, uh, she was always and came from a Democratic family in Florida. So um, it, it is that, though. I mean, I, I think that our, our, our kids, all of whom are grown now, uh, they sort of grew up in a family and a household that was identifiably, at least from a public way, Republican, but knew differently when we were at the dinner table. Uh, so I do think it's made for a much uh, more well-rounded sort of awareness uh, and um, I, I do think that it also um, reflects how life goes. You know, you can't just um, always get your way in life. We, we learned that when we were little kids, uh, that you got to learn to work with others uh, and try and reach consensus. So I, I, I like to think that that's the way I've practiced my marriage uh, and that um, that's why we've been married now over 31 years, uh, happily so. You mentioned being a Jewish Republican. Uh, one story to share personally, I remember uh, picking you up from the airport, I think for a fundraiser you came in to do for Kirk, like early, mid-2000s. We had uh, we always had a tough re-election uh, competitive always. district. Uh, and and I remember just asking you, I was like in awe. I was like, oh my God, this is a Jewish Republican next to me. He's a Jewish, I'm a Jewish Republican. I, I have to talk to him, but like he's like a big deal. He's the chief majority whip, whatever that means. And uh, And... You know, I remember asking you, so do you go to a synagogue? And you're like, yeah, I like Chabad, you know, in Richmond. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. It goes to Chabad. <laughs> I, I guess for our listeners out there, what is it like to actually be an elected Republican who is Jewish? You know, at the time, the only Jewish Republican sort of inheriting the mantle from Ben Gilman, you know, when he when he left the house. Well, I'll start again. I grew up, uh, unlike you, Rich, in the suburbs of Chicago, where there were a, a large Jewish community. And, and, you know, I grew up in a not so uh, Jewish community. It was a um, uh, obviously a suburban Richmond seat in Virginia, a small Jewish population, fairly prominent, but small. Uh, and so the district I ran in probably had maybe 1% or less Jewish. And so, again, I grew up in a, um, I went to a private school in Richmond and we went to, I went to chapel every single day. It was a Protestant, uh, school. And, and, you know, I often tell people, I said, I, I was exposed to prayer in school early on. And at the same time in the afternoon, I'd go to Hebrew school. So it, it was sort of a, a, a great upbringing for me because I think it brought her closer to the faith and who I am as a Jew. Uh, and then, uh, with a father who, um, 
was in the legal community in Richmond and got involved with a friend of his who was running for office. And that's how he and my mother got involved in Republican politics. And at the time, uh, you know, Jerry Falwell uh, was still alive. So he was to the west of my district in Lynchburg. To the east of the district was Pat Robertson and all of the he's about it um, at Regent University and the rest in Virginia Beach. So it really was an interesting sort of way to grow up. And here all of a sudden there is uh, uh, the, the possibility that I would become the uh, congressman and ultimately did. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, one thing I, I would always push back on and that were, you know, when I first got elected to Washington, um, you know, being in such a minority within a minority, um, it was almost like um, people would parade through my office just to see this individual like this creature you know it's like like a freak show like really so uh, but again i i do think that i was able to um uh, project the notion that you know both of our parties should be open to all face i mean obviously in today's world there is just such hyperbole on the issue of diversity and and faith and 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 clearly um you know being so few uh of republicans in public office at the federal level i just thought it was important that i demonstrate to you know all the younger jewish republicans that hey this this is a party that actually does have a place for you and and i would just venture to say even further i mean what we're seeing and i i, I listened to some of your prior podcasts and we we're talking about the bds movement and talking about some of the progressive positions that you know some elected officials are taking the problems frankly are coming more from those uh, than they are from maybe some individuals on my side so eric we're gonna rich definitely wants to ask you about that but before he does um i want to take a minute to ask you about uh the january 6th riot at the capitol as somebody who was a member of the house in-house leadership cares about the institution leaving the politics of it aside can you tell us what sort of how you reacted when you heard about it and and what you where you think it leaves us because i would tell you that we started this podcast not really knowing why we were starting starting this podcast and now rich and i every time we get on the pod we talk about that being the bad end state and if we can continue to have this dialogue we're moving in the right direction but what did it mean to you well, Jared, you know, I, I got so upset when I saw that because it was heartbreaking to me as someone who came of age, if you will, professionally working in that building and representing the people that elected me. And um, I, I, I did. I penned an op-ed for The Washington Post and I spoke out about that. I mean, I just felt like, you know, once the process of appeal um, had been exhausted by the Trump campaign, matters were done. I mean, if you are a person who believes in the rule of law, if you are a person who believes in our Constitution, there was no other move to make other than once the state certified the, the Electoral College votes in the 50 states, and they reported it to the clerk in the House in the joint session, that's it. And so this notion that somehow there could be overturning of the, that count just because maybe, you know, a, a, an elected official or a state, um, you know, a secretary of state or something somewhere because the president said could overturn it or even the vice president could overturn it. It just was not com comporting with my view of what the law says or what the Constitution said. So I just think that was a misleading notion. It was a lie. 
And, and, and for anybody to sit out there, once all that was taking place, again, I don't take away from him or the campaign the ability to exhaust that. And he did have a right to avail himself of the court of law and this courts of law in this country around the states. Once they were done, then that's it. So I, I really felt like, you know, this is a time to speak out for the truth uh, and to say to everyone, look, I mean, false expectations can lead to a very dangerous path. Uh, and I don't think that my party has a monopoly on that because I do think you're hearing it, um, you know, Jared, from your side as well, that all we have to do is fight hard enough and we can get our way. Uh, and if we do that, and if we don't get that done, that means people aren't fighting enough and fighting hard enough and they're not true believers. So they're going to be expunged from the party. I mean, that's a very dangerous path to go down. So I, you know, I applaud you and sort of the two of you getting together and having this podcast and especially uh, uh, both being Jewish and coming from both sides. Well, there's definitely issues, issues there. You know that we're talking about in the news right now. The filibuster. What will it last? Will it be done away with? DC statehood. Is it sort of the alternative route to hijack power? Uh, do you have any views right now on DC statehood or, or filibuster reform? Well, first of all, I mean it does come down to the filibuster. You're right, uh, Rich. There's no way they get DC statehood done if they can't uh, do it. Um, uh, with 50 vote, I mean, a simple, a simple majority. And that would require them to, to then set a precedent on that particular kind of vote. I, I feel like, you know, this is stressing the system. There's no question. Um, because, and we talked a little bit about before all the spending going on, because now that if they're going to put taxes, if they're going to put some of the more extreme measures, uh, in the infrastructure bill, uh, that Republicans, um, and not bring in the Republicans to have a say, uh, Republicans aren't going to participate in that. And so once that happens, uh, the traffic's not going to bear everything. I mean, you can imagine, you know, uh, a Joe Manchin or a Christian Cinema or a Hickenlooper or some of these people, they're not going to go along with a tester, some of the more extreme things on the progressive agenda. And, and, and so, um, they won't, I mean, the Democrats can't lose anybody. That's the problem. So there will be things and items left out. I mean, just look at the minimum wage debate. Already, that's been left out. And the only route to get that done for the Democrats, they see, is to blow up the filibuster. Well, you do that, and, and Ms. McConnell's already laid down and issued a warning. There's going to be a nuclear winner in the Senate. And um, I do think it'll, it'll upend the system forever. So hopefully they don't go there. Uh, my suspicion is they're going to they're getting mighty close in their rhetoric to signaling they'll go there on HR one on this voting rights stuff. Um, and so if that's the case, you know, again, that's Katie bar the door, though. It's going to it's not going to be pretty. All right. Jared previewed. I do want to get back to the issue you raised on Israel and BDS and all that, because I, I, I obviously we talk about it a lot. It, it's a big issue for our listeners. When you were in Congress, just like my old boss, I mean, it was a really bipartisan issue for so many years. Israel uh, stopping castigation of Israel at the UN, people who would try to boycott Israel. The Iran issue was just, I mean, 100 to nothing votes in the Senate, 435 almost to nothing votes in, in, in the House on Iran sanctions. It all started changing 
I would I would argue during the Obama administration years and beyond, and then sort of the backlash against Trump, whatever Trump did had you know Democrats to be against. We're now in this place where we see on the progressive left, you know, the BDS issue and conditioning aid to Israel, the isolationist right, just get out of endless wars, get out of the Middle East, cut off cut off support. Is the era of bipartisanship on these issues dead? Or do you think it can be revived? You know, it's it's interesting to go back and look at sort of the trajectory of the Israel issue um, and bipartisanship. Because when I came, I mean, I had to actually learn it from the other way. Because I, I remember I put in um, a bill when I first got to Congress that conditioned aid to the Palestinians uh, on their um, ceasing destruction of the antiquities in the Temple Mount. I mean, because they'd gone through and just were racking up all the evidence that would suggest uh, the Jewish people's tied ancient ties to the land of Israel uh, for a reason. And we knew that. And so but I, I couldn't imagine why I wasn't getting like this resounding support from the Jewish community and from the pro-Israel community, APAC and others. And I quickly found out because even back then, you know, there was a little extreme for the pro-Israel crowd because they were trying to maintain sort of this balance of bipartisanship, Democrat and Republican. Um, and so, but increasingly, I think two things happened on Israel. One um, is um, as we saw the more radicalization, if you will, of the progressive left uh, and this, what they, that term they use of intersectionality, you know, the um, I don't quite understand all of it, but if you're a victim, then we'll be for you because we're a victim. Uh, and it almost became Israel after the Yom Kippur War, I think, proved to the world that it was no longer the underdog, uh, that it was actually the strongest player, uh, certainly in the Levant and in the eastern uh, Mediterranean, uh, and uh, if not throughout the Middle East now, uh, even, in, even with the Gulf uh, countries. So um, if they no longer, Israel no longer enjoyed that. And if you think about the plight and, if you will, the psyche of the Jewish people, you know, for thousands of years, we were always people who never believed that might made right because we never had the might. Right. And we actually could persist uh, uh, because of other things and other reasons. And, and um, you know, both through our faith and, and the whole sort of list of things that we could talk about for hours. But, um, you know, that sort of countered this notion of what the Jewish community thought about Israel. And so right away now, the progressive agenda started building that they there needed to be more sympathy for the Palestinians. There needed to be more uh, look away from the fact that the IDF is the Israel Defense Forces, that the reason why they use force is to defend themselves in a very unfriendly neighborhood. Uh, and so I do think that that had a lot to do with it. So you saw beginning the progressive left. They started J Street, you know, when Obama came into office. They started a lot of these things that were supportive of BDS if, if, if Israel um, continued uh, to use its military strength. And frankly, it became very partisan, secondly, um, during the Obama administration. There's no question about it. You know, Rahm Emanuel, your fellow Chicagoan, uh, you know, he... 
he was unequivocal at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, he was not supportive of Bibi uh, as prime minister. And the, you know, the sharing of political talent bo- on both sides that played out in Israel reflected what we had going on here. So I do think those two issues really started to cloud, um, you know, the support for Israel. I do think it's still somewhat bipartisan, but there's definitely a lot more difficulty at it now. Do you think that Bibi bears any responsibility for this? Do you think he purposefully made a uh, common cause with Republicans at the expense of Democrats? I, I think on the Iran um, deal, the JCPOA, there's no question that he was going to do everything he could to try and stop that. So mm-hmm. remember the time that John, uh, I don't know who it was, uh, I guess it was Boehner, and he invited um, Bibi to speak to the joint session um, and you know, again, I don't know, Jared, if you were there or not at the time, but, um, uh, you know, Obama apparently didn't know about it. Or if they did, they weren't notified in time. So clearly there was some, you know, ruffling of feathers there. No question. But I go back to when Obama was elected. And this is when I first became the whip and then the leader. I mean, you know, there were they were there was instigation coming from the Obama White House. It wasn't as if Bibi necessarily instigated this because, I mean, Israel needs the U.S. I mean, there's no question about it. And he's, he, he understands that. So but, you know, as things progress, I mean, there's no question if, if all in for JCPOA to try and defeat it. But it became so partisan then. I mean, remember, it was like, uh, you know, the Democrats that the Jewish community and the pro-Israel community had counted on, you know, to be with them. They turned their backs on the pro-Israel community on that vote. A lot of them did um, because it was President Obama that said, nope, we need this. So it's become a lot more partisan. So but listen, things have changed in the Middle East, too. I mean, in my in my, you know, uh, job now, I spent a lot of time in the Gulf and, and I cannot believe. You know, I've been on Zoom calls, multiple Zoom calls, um, uh, sitting in Washington or New York with Abu Dhabi and Tel Aviv. I mean, it's, it's yeah. amazing. And I will be the first person to, you know, if I give any credit to the Trump administration for anything, that's the one thing is uh, mm-hmm. sort of really changing the landscape of what is possible in the Middle East. Um, and that will echo for generations. And, and you know, we have to build on on. Uh, you know, the Biden administration has to build on what it inherited. Next year in Abu Dhabi, as we will say over the weekend, or, I, 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 maybe I have that wrong. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I might yeah. have a different text. I have a different text. Uh, uh, um, so, Eric, we, uh, we have a, a series of questions we like to do with all of our guests uh, that are more lighthearted um, to yeah. tell us a little bit about just to sort of round out the interview. And this has been fabulous. And we really do appreciate you, you spending some time with us today. Um, the first one is, do you have a favorite Yiddish word? And I would just say, I would, I am very excited to hear it with a Virginia accent because in my mind, Yiddish in America only gets spoken with a Brooklyn accent. So, so do you have a favorite one? I will tell you, there is a one that now as uh, a parent who is about to become a grandparent, um, the, uh, the term, um, for which there is no English word, uh, and only Yiddish is machatunum. And uh, <laughs> you know what that means. Mahatunam is the definite, it, it's defined as uh, your uh, either daughter or son-in-law's parents. 
And the relationship- I, I, I was going to ask, do you have any comment on your future you mother-in-law for man. the podcast? This, this is your moment. They, they don't listen. I'm sure no, they that's don't not listen. My mother-in-law, it's right. It's my, it's my, it's the other set of grandparents. The correspondent. Right. Right. The right. correspondent. Right. I believe the appropriate answer for that, Eric, is I don't recall. No, I, I love them. Are, are you kidding them? <laughs> I, I will say just one, one interesting, funny story. We had uh, uh, somebody who worked in our office from Southern Indiana, had a big drawl. And I was, you know, I am Sabbath observant, so I would leave Friday. And, you know, Mark would always, like, make a thing about it, like, oh, yep, Shabbat, Shabbat, Richard's leaving. And she would just see, like, oh, it's like Eric Canner. And she would say, Shabbat Shalom, y'all. Yeah, like, yeah, that's how Eric Canner says, says Shabbat Shalom. I, I, I'm pretty sure so, I have that on a mug from a, from a shul in the south somewhere. All right, Rich, ne- next up on our lightning round. All right, next question. Okay, uh, is there a book you've read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh yeah, I've um, I try and read um, I try and read a book a month on top of all the other kinds of things coming at us right now, and um, I'm I'm reading right now a book by Hank Paulson actually called Dealing with China. Um, the other one that I I'm juggling is one by Jerry Saab, you know the the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, sort of uh, reporter and, and and editor, and he he wrote a book called We Should Have Seen It Coming. Uh, and it's a book about the Republican and cons- Party and conservative movement up through Donald Trump. So, two two books I'm reading now, both pretty pretty good. All right, uh, Eric, what's your favorite part of Passover? And if you say matzah, we have like a a big light that goes on for for people who are not telling the yeah. complete truth. I, I would say the uh, the the eighth day at sundown is my favorite okay. part. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, last question. Last question. What is the coolest place in Virginia that people have probably never heard of, never visited, but you think they should? I would say uh, Colonial Trail, which is a new bike trail between uh, Richmond and Williamsburg and goes along sort of the plantation alley along the James River is a great new addition. Um, So I would say that right now. I drove through there back in 2019 when I was uh, at NSC. It was, uh, it was pretty cool. There you have it. Eric Cantor, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it and hope you, to see you back again soon. Absolutely. And uh, happy and uh, coach for Passover. To you Zizan, as well. Zizan Pesa. Thanks, Eric. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, Jared, what a great interview. So great to have Eric Hanner on the podcast. But uh, let's get into our listener mailbox for this week. Uh, We have for one of our listeners, what are your plans for Passover? And can you share any personal Passover family stories? JB. Well, our family's going to be out in the west of the United States for Passover. We're going to do the Seders with my brother in Houston, my brother and sister-in-law and his kids. And then for Cholomoyd, we are actually going to be in Arches National Park in the desert, as it would be, uh, exploring some of the great American West. And I think that that's sort of apropos this year that we'll be in the desert as as our people were uh, following the exodus from Egypt. I think you've already heard my best Passover story. We, you know, the night uh, Barack Obama taught me about the meaning of Passover with the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, but I would just say, for me, you know, it was this larger than life spectacle where it got so big one year. Uh, we had a 
we had to rent a VFW hall because we had 55 people, including uh, my dear cousin, the very conservative law professor, David Bernstein at George Mason University, who loves to spar with me on Twitter. Just so you know, we are a bipartisan family as well, Rich. How about you? Well, first of all, thank you to the VFW. Speaking as a lifetime member, I'm glad we could provide for your Passover needs. Uh, so for me, I will say, uh, thankfully, um, I do give thanks to the Almighty. We have uh, fully vaccinated parents. And so in compliance with CDC guidelines, we will be together with them uh, for both satyrs. And we are looking forward uh, to that after, uh, as for most people, a quite emotional experience last year uh, being without our families. As far as a personal family story, uh, I will say this, uh, I would not be alive today without Pesach, without the holiday of Passover, uh, to try to make a very long story as short as possible for this podcast. My grandfather was a refugee of Germany in 1939, and he got on one of the last kinder transports uh, out of Kiel, Germany. They got over the border. They got on a kinder transport, came to London into an orphanage, out of an orphanage, joined the military, the British Army, went to fight, got injured got sent to Edinburgh, Scotland on convalescence leave. And he was there coming up on Passover and he went to a Jewish social club. And there were some young people there who said, David, do you have a place for Seder? And he said, no, but I have my Haggadah, one of the few things I took out of Germany with me. And he said, great, there, we don't have a lot of men around. They're all fighting. Would you lead the Seder for us? He said, I'd be honored to. And he came to someone's house and he led the Seder. And during Shulchan Aruch, the time when we eat the meal, he talked with the woman across the table from him. And they got married 33 days later on Lagba Omer. And so the lesson is always save a seat, have a guest, try to invite people when CDC guidelines allow it, uh, because you never know how life will change uh, when we welcome people to our home for Passover Seder. Oh, Maine. Wow, tough to follow that one. But if you have any comments, questions, show ideas, tips, send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. Please come follow us on Clubhouse and on Twitter at J.I. Podcast. And remember to follow and subscribe to the Limited Liability Podcast on your podcast listening medium of choice. Till next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Chag Sameach, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yeah. yeah.